Happy Thanksgiving, EMM listeners. We want to extend a special thank you to all of you for tuning in to our show. Today, we are featuring a special episode on health disparities in the opioid epidemic and their intersection with the ER that we produced for the Iowa Healthcare Collaborative's Compass Opioid Stewardship Program, a national initiative to provide comprehensive education on opioid stewardship and best practices. With Thanksgiving around the corner, time is running out to submit applications for our Diversity and Inclusion Award available to fourth-year medical students applying to EM residencies that are underrepresented in medicine. Follow the link in our show notes to apply. This is the Compass Opiate Stewardship Expert Spotlight, proudly presented by the Iowa Healthcare Collaborative and sponsored by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. In this podcast, we interview thought leaders, innovators, and clinicians on the front lines of combating the opioid crisis and improving patient care. Together, we can build a better, safer practice for our patients, our communities, and ourselves. Well, welcome to our next podcast, which is all about the California Bridge Project, with a focus on health disparities and the effects of COVID-19 on opioid use disorder. We are very pleased to have our featured guests, Andrew Herring and Charles Hawthorne. I am Rachel Duncan, your host. I use the pronouns she, her, and my co-host is Dr. Don Stater, who uses the pronouns he, him. Um, A little bit of background on our guest. Andrew is the director and co-principal investigator of the California Bridge Project. He is also an attending emergency physician an associate director of research at Highland Hospital in Oakland, as well as the medical director of the hospital's substance use disorder treatment program, and an attending physician at its interdisciplinary pain medicine program. His current research focuses on emergency department treatment of opioid use disorders and pain management, which is very near and dear to our heart. He is board certified in emergency medicine, addiction medicine, and pain medicine. Andrew uses the pronouns he, him. Charles is the Equity and Harm Reduction Project Manager for California Bridge. They joined California Bridge with four years of harm reduction education and program development experience as a capacity building manager at National Harm Reduction Coalition. Charles joined California Bridge to advocate for higher quality emergency services for people of color who use drugs. Charles has a BS in biochemistry from Purdue University and is currently pursuing an MPH from Johns Hopkins University as a Bloomberg American Health Initiative Fellow in the Addiction and Overdose Focus Area. Charles uses the pronouns they, she, her. So welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Just a couple of underachievers here. Quite the bios you both have. (laughs) Thank you. We're happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks, y'all. (laughs) So let's jump right in. What led both of you to being involved with combating the opioid epidemic and doing this type of work? Well, you know, for for me, I guess it it was sort of had a very bioreductionist initiation in in the sense of we were there seeing in emergency medicine the obvious sort of dead end with the proliferation of opioids for pain and became very interested in alternative and complementary multimodal analgesia. And it's just as a, from the pathophysiology of pain, you just learn how flawed opioids are. So that became this big aha moment of like, oh my gosh, you know, I thought I was helping people. I'm actually hurting them. And that led to very reasonable 
efforts to restrict opioid utilization and prescribing, which I dove into. And then I remember one of my colleagues, Dan Mantuani, came up to me and, and we were talking about restricting the use of hydromorphone in the ED. And, and he said, well, well, great, you know, that, that, that helps people not get addicted, but what about the people who already have an addiction? And it was just a very obvious humanistic perspective that I had completely missed because I was really focused on the, you know, the sort of medicine, you know, narrow medicine side of it. And that just was a really important moment in my life because it just sort of opened up this whole world of like, okay, wait, if it's opposed to sort of working on a pain score, how do I help a person who has this, this sort of situation of opioid addiction or whatever we're calling it? And then that's just a really big, you know, ball of yarn that I'm just <laughs> pulling on ever since and just kind of following it in all of its dimensions since then which has been you know just it's definitely been the most rewarding thing i've ever done that's for sure yeah andrew your story sounds very similar actually to don's story yeah of sort of what led him into this type of work i don't know don if you want to comment on that yeah there's two rules of medicine right the first one is the one we all talk about which is do no harm like don't actually hurt people but then there's a second corollary rule which is do good don't harm people, do good. And I think that's really the same story. And Andrew has been a longtime mentor to me. So I, I, I many times uh, reflect back on the pivotal role Andrew's had in giving me guidance from afar and how to pursue a career just like his, where you know I'm learning more every day and, and really taking on a better mantle of, of helping my patients with opioid use disorders as well as my patients in pain. So it's an honor to do a podcast with Andrew, who's been really so instrumental in my career. Oh, it's nice of you, Don. Appreciate that. <laughs> Charles, what about you? What what led you to do this type of work? So, you know, what's pretty interesting for me is I came into the work of harm reduction kind of more through the anti-culture side of things. When I was younger, I was very into the concept of health work that made people super uncomfortable. I was like a young queer kid. I was very into sex education. I was very into drug education um, because it made people squirm a little bit. But the question that always would kind of dig for me is like, well, why does that make you squirm? Why does that make you uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. And so I originally was doing a lot of my focus was around HIV support, especially for young people of color who are at risk of serial converting and young people of color who had already serial converted um, to being HIV positive. And then I kind of moved into doing more work with the sex work community specifically. Okay. And so when I started working with the sex work community, I was working at a program in Washington, D.C. called HIPS, um, which works primarily with, at the time, a lot of Black trans women who did sex work. And it was really interesting coming there and expecting that I was going to be doing all this stuff that was more around like sexual health, education, talking to people about how to negotiate boundaries, these types of stuff. And at that moment, which was, I think this was in 2016, that was when fentanyl was really starting to pick yeah. up in the East Coast. And so HIPS had started their syringe access program, I think, a couple of years prior to this. Um, they had started doing naloxone distribution. And so that became a huge part of our work. Mm -hmm. Everybody was asking for naloxone when they were coming. Um, and it was especially interesting because a lot of the people who were coming into this program were people who primarily use stimulants. So this wasn't even as much like a really big opioid heroin specific, but people did use heroin as well. Um, but a lot of the main clients of the, of the organization use stimulants, while a lot of new people coming 
were people who used opiates and like fentanyl and heroin. Okay. Um, so from there, I kind of was like, this is actually really interesting too. I really like it. I did my background in biochemistry. Like I, I, I love having conversations around drug use and safety and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I kind of stuck around with that. Um, and so I, I will say like, usually when I talk about my work, I focus a little bit more, not just on opioids specifically, but overdose and drug use in general and yes. thinking about how do we as people, how do we as humans find this this homeostatic space how do we find this balance to drug use that is like like what don was saying that we're not doing harm but we're also doing good like what is the benefits that all these substances bring into our lives and how do we maximize those benefits and minimize all those really tragic harms that can come um and i'm looking forward to talking a little bit more about what some of those harms are and how we can actually start pushing back on them instead of just having to accept them as like the lay of the land for drugs being a thing in our life Uh, Well, thank you for being here. I just can't wait to dig into that more. Andrew, just to to start out, tell us a little bit about the California Bridge Program for our listeners that aren't familiar. You know, how did it start? What services do you provide and kind of what the impact is? This is a very impressive program. Thanks. Sure. I mean, I, you know, the California Bridge is a pretty straightforward technical assistance and funding program that is taking state opioid response funds so the, the federal response to the opioid epidemic, and then using that to bring hospitals, hospital-based care uh, into the set of solutions, healthcare settings where opioid use disorder um, is identified and treatments initiated and connected to longitudinal care. So it's a pretty dry idea. You know, it's just kind of odd that it didn't happen before. You know, it's yeah. it's sort of like putting a, you know, putting a mast on a sailboat. It's just, it's this sort of like, no, duh, it's a disease. There's good treatments. Why on earth would a hospital not be doing them? Mm-hmm. So within that, you know, very kind of dry shell, it's it's got a lot of really exciting people like Charles and all these other folks around the state. And just doing the simple thing of learning how to use buprenorphine or learning how to use methadone and learning how to recognize opioid withdrawal, you confront these crazy cultural things that that Charles has brought up, you know, <laughs> that that are just so grounded in culture and history and stigma, very little to do with with medicine at some level. And so a lot of our work is around creating the not just giving you money to hire someone to do the work and giving you protocols so that you know what to do, but also just to figure this just to sort of icebreaker plow through all this crazy history uh, around the use of drugs and substances in our life and and all of the all of those things all that sort of anthropology of all this yeah and just to add on to that like in cup in my coming to california bridge something that i also love so yeah andrew and i we we've actually been working together for a few years now so prior to me coming over to california bridge i was a uh consultant with uh when I was at National Harm Reduction Coalition I was working with California Bridge along with my team to start building up some of as they were getting started building up some of their harm reduction practice and stuff like that and something that I've always really appreciated about the way that California Bridge has approached our work now is it's not just about like Andrew's saying it's not about just the protocol it's about the transformation it's about how are we actually changing these systems so that we don't have to go back and do this again Like, what are the things that we actually need to influence? And the thing is, at the end of the day, it's people. 
it's the connections with people mm. that those, those are the changes. And so that technical assistance, part of it is like, you know, yep, we're going to give you some templates. We're going to give you some documents. We're going to go through and help this as, be as easy as possible for you. But we're also going to sit down and talk to you and say, like, what is making this hard for you? What is coming up for you? And, you know, whenever we do this work, it's always so much that comes up. People have their own relationships to drugs. They have their families and their friends that are always influencing how they're showing up. That's influencing that thought and that voice in the back of their head when somebody comes in. And the more that we kind of give people space to talk about that and explore that and, and push back on that and connect that with their professional knowledge and connect that with your professional experience the better outcomes that the patients that we're trying to support have. Well, and Charles, that's why it's like so important to have someone like you on a team like this, because I feel like us clinicians are just like one side of our brain about this stuff. We're like, hey, there's a treatment. Now let's treat the patient. And you're over here like, there's a lot more going on. Like, let's figure out these issues, right? Yeah. I, I think it's an argument in general for the value of multidisciplinary teams. Like, sure. that's that's what comes up when we have all these different people. Because, you know, I have a lot of doctors in my family. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's not even just about the medicine. It's just about the way that people think. And when you have lots of different people who think lots of different ways, you find lots of different strategies to solve the same problem. And that's usually the only way that you solve problems is with lots of different strategies. I'm glad you mentioned the importance of interdisciplinary teams. I'd imagine harm reduction strategies play a big role in all of this. I don't know, Charles, what do you think are, are really the harm reduction best practices that every at-risk patient needs to have access to? You know, we all know like clean syringes and needles and naloxone, but go deeper than that because you have such experience here. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, actually, what I think I would say about this is one distinction that in the harm reduction community we've been talking about making is the difference between harm reduction tools and strategies versus harm reduction as a practice and harm reduction as a movement. And when we talk about harm reduction as a movement, what we're really talking about is like doing this practice when it was illegal, doing it because it's right, doing it because we know it works and how that's been happening for at this point, 25, 30, 40 years. And how that is really about not just the not just the handing of somebody like a new sterile needle but about saying as a person who uses drugs when we give you the tools and the knowledge and the power to maintain your own health people do it they take care of themselves yeah. they and people have been taking care of themselves because the thing is is if you don't take care of this yourselves you don't survive as a drug user for very long. You don't just survive mm -hmm. as a person living on the street for very long. And there's a lot of people who we've lost, a lot of people who have died because they have not had access to these resources, even with all of the work that they've done to, to try and maintain their own health. And then when we talk about harm reduction as a practice, we're talking about like when you're in the clinic, when you're in the program, when you're talking to somebody on the phone, it's about how are you approaching that person? And so once we get past that, we can get into the granular things, which is like, yes, offering new sterile needles is incredible for reducing the risk of transmitting and contracting HIV, hepatitis C, also preventing people from getting abscesses and other things from using dull needles and needles that have come into contact with bacteria. Giving people naloxone is great. Giving people fentanyl test strips is great. But all those things aren't actually helpful unless you engage with people as well. And that's something that I really appreciated seeing Andrew and uh, Joshua Luftig at Highland Hospital, like in working with them. That's something that I see they do really beautifully. Sometimes I see when people get into harm reduction as a new thing because they're uncomfortable with it, because they don't know what to do it. They kind of do this thing where they just kind of like 
throw materials at people and run away. Like the whole brochure thing. Like when people don't want to engage with people around, they're like dietary restrictions. And so they just hand them this three-page brochure of all the things they're not supposed to eat. And, and then they just walk away. Patient-facing material. <laughs> patient-facing materials. It's like, no, you're the patient-facing material. You are the patient-facing <laughs> person. You're the yeah. person. This is your job. And yeah. so like, it's not about this, the handing of the needles. It's about saying, hey, because I see this is what's going on in your health. These are the big challenges that I'm seeing. This is one strategy that you can use to reduce this because I want you to be healthy. And this is how you use this. I've seen nurses sit with patients and walk them through how you properly inject so yes. that you don't get abscesses. Yes. I've seen doctors have conversations about who are the people who can keep an eye on you when you're using in case you overdose because you can't use naloxone on yourself. You have to have another person around. And so those are the strategies. And when you have those conversations, it's about, it's, it does some things where it's like, there's that education piece where people do like, you know, all that adult learning things where it's like, when you sit and talk to people like adults, you connect it to their knowledge, you give them an opportunity to ask questions, people learn and integrate things into their life better. But even more than that, they know that you care about them as a provider. And they know that like their life is important to you, which means that when they're having an issue, they're more likely to come back and get more care, even if it's not just from you, even if it's from another provider. And when we build that network up, that is what actually harm reduction looks like. Because we can spend as much money as we want on syringes and naloxone and all that. But if we're not actually like passing off structural power, if we're not actually giving material resources to people who use drugs, it's not actually going to create a change. Well, and Don, I feel like you've had that experience in the emergency room. Like we've, we've initiated a lot of like take home naloxone programs and, but it's that piece of like you handing that patient the naloxone and talking to them as a person that they're like, I knew someone cared about me, you know, I don't know, Don, if you want to comment on on your experience with a situation like that, but. Yeah, I agree with totally. The naloxone is important, but it's really not the core issue. It's it's about the relationship. It's about looking at the person like a person who's deserving of care, yes. communicating that, making that safe environment for the patient to return to you if they do want to seek recovery and seek treatment, knowing that, hey, we always have an open door. And not only is it okay to come back, but we want you to come back, that, that this is part of what we do deeply and concretely within medicine. But let me ask Charles this. Fentanyl, I've seen, is really starting to change the game here in Colorado because so many of our experienced users who, like I said, have a lot, decades sometimes of drug use, we're seeing them overdose. We're seeing them come in with overdose because of the adulteration of fentanyl in our, in our drug supply, which is very new to Colorado. We've always been black tar heroin. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you how fentanyl has changed the game or how you're seeing it change the game for some of these patients who, who use drugs, who have been using for a long time, and now are at increased risk because of fentanyl. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. When I came into the harm reduction movement, it was right at the beginning of this transition where I had I, I was not really a part of it in the time before fentanyl. I was there right as it was scaling up in the East Coast, and then I kind of watched it move across the country. And California is kind of similar, a lot of black tar heroin, which usually means that there's always been kind of gunk mixed into it, but yeah. like there, there hasn't historically been as much like fentanyl being passed off as heroin, which happened a lot on the East Coast where they have like white china and a lot of different types of heroin that sometimes can look more like fentanyl. And I think you're exactly right. Like prior to this, the biggest risk with people were at for overdose when they were brand new users, they were exiting a treatment program or prison, Mm -hmm. or they were just uh, returning to use in general. 
And that was when the highest risk was. And what fentanyl has essentially done, like you're saying, is it, it, it's kind of thrown a wild card into it. You actually have a lot of times no idea the strength of drugs that you're using. And I think that that is going to be an issue as long as we maintain ourselves in the state that we're in. And that's what the really scary part is. It's like, I think that that's something that when I think about my alcohol use, for example, if you were to grab a bottle off the shelf and be like, this could be Everclear and it could be watered down wine. You actually don't know. Have a shot. Find out together. You have no idea how your night is about to go. And that's really dangerous, depending on the situation you're in. Whether that's a situation of, I need to maintain my health, or that's a situation of, I need to not make a fool of myself. And when you think about with something like fentanyl in our drug supply, that's what it's doing. Only the, the danger level of it is ramped up really high. And the scary part of it is, is that's kind of the situation that we've dug ourselves into. We've created this illicit drug market that is consistently spurned on itself to be more and more potent. If we think about prohibition era when it comes to alcohol, alcohol got very, very dangerous as a result of prohibition. It, was, it did not go yeah. away. What happened was rich people stocked up their wine cellars. They had their things ready to go. They wrote it out just fine. And poor people were doing things like drinking, um, you know, those like liquid fires that they put under like warming trays at cookouts. People were drinking that to get alcohol. People were drinking all types of tinctures and stuff to get alcohol. People were making alcohol in their bathtubs. You have no idea. And as a result, the strength of liquor in the U.S. skyrocketed and has maintained that, that higher level to this day. And that's what's happened with heroin. When you're, mm-hmm. every time you're arresting somebody for importing a pound of drugs, if they're like, well, I can get arrested for importing a p- pound of heroin and make, I don't know, $1,000, or I can get caught importing a pound of fentanyl and make $20,000. Yeah. Easy math. It's economics. Yeah, e- economics. That's capitalism. Mm-hmm. And that's how it plays out. And then what happens is it turns around and we're like, no, 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 not that. And it's like, that's the system. But ultimately, what's kind of the situation that we're building is we're digging this hole deeper and deeper and deeper. The more that we criminalize substances, the more that people are at risk for using them, the more that people are at risk for selling them, the higher level that people are going to want to go to to assume that risk. They don't want to assume that risk for something small, for something that's not going to be able to feed their family, for something that's not going to help them move forward in this life. They're going to assume the risk for something that's worth it. And unfortunately, in the space that we're in, Something that's worth it is also something that makes people really vulnerable to the harms that can come to drug use. Well, it is such an interesting change of concept because we're all the dare generation, right? <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? And so I think for a lot of <laughs> listeners, like this is very radical. And but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm hoping not 10 years, hopefully a year from now, we're, we're having these conversations much more normally, which would be yeah. great. And I think something that I like to think about when it comes to something like dare is I, I always think of... There's this word, there's this author, her name is Hannah Blank. She wrote this book called Straight, which talked about the history of heterosexuality, completely changed the way that I think about drug use. Because one of the things that she continually talks about in this book is we always just assume that the world that we're in and the things that people know is what everybody has always known. And that is not the case. If you think about it, drugs have predated the criminalization of drugs by tens of thousands of years. People have been using psilocybin mushrooms, ayahuasca, peyote, other psychedelics. People have been consuming poppies. People have been consuming cocoa plants. People have been consuming cannabis for tens of thousands of years. But what it ultimately means is like criminalization is a very new concept. And we need to critique why does it exist? 
And in the history of the United States, drug criminalization exists because of structural racism. Drug criminalization exists. The first ever drug criminalization law that was passed in the U.S. was passed in San Francisco, California in the late 1800s. It criminalized the smoking of opium and which was directly related to Chinese migration during that period. It was corrected around controlling Chinese men who were coming and smoking opium, who were engaging in what they saw as unbecoming behavior. And that criminalization was the foundation to be able to start to break up those groups, to take their money, to limit their freedom, and to limit their mobility. And that's continued when we talk about cannabis in the Southwest part of the United States Mm -hmm. in relation to not just like Mexican-Americans, but actually the crossing of the border, Mm -hmm. how the border crossed people. And now there was a motivation to limit the capabilities of people. We talk Mm -hmm. about the criminalization of heroin and crack and cocaine, which was directly related to limiting the power of Black people who were already being really poorly paid in the times after sharecropping and after slavery had ended. But they were using drugs like cocaine to work long hours to make more money and were taking the jobs of white people. And that was a problem for people. So there's always these motivations. And so what the question comes in is not necessarily what is illegal and what is not and what is the drug. And we get all caught up in the the biomechanics and the impact on the body and the risk. When really it's about is who benefits from this being illegal? Who makes money? Who has made money from this being illegal? And we talk about cannabis. You know, now cannabis is becoming very, very legal. And what's helping it become very, very legal is a change in who's receiving that money. Yep, yep. And that's the critique that we have to be able to sit in. And that's the critique that I think often requires us to have a really much more complex way of thinking about these things rather than just like drugs are good or bad or drug use is good or bad. No, so many good points in there. And it really segues nicely into talking about health equity and disparities surrounding this topic. You know, and just for our listeners, let's just start out with a, with a simple question as we segue into this. But like, what is health equity, Charles, from the expert here? What, talk to me. Tell us your, your definition of health equity. I think Andrew would have something to say about this too and the okay. way that it kind of plays out in the hospital. But I think for me, when I think health equity, my most basic definition is I, as a health person, as a person who really centers public health, thinks that every single person in our world, we have too many resources for people to not have access to the things that they need to maintain their health. And as a public health person specifically, health is a public resource. When we are healthy, I am healthy. Okay. And so it's, for me, it's really about seeing where are the opportunities that we can ensure that everybody has the opportunity to be as healthy as they can for the benefit of, like, you know, in, both in a selfish way, but also in a way of, if we're all healthy, we're all healthy. And that's much easier and, and cheaper than some people, you know, having access to really high levels of this care and some people having none. Yeah. Andrew, anything to add to the role that that plays in, in- you know, what you do in the emergency room and other areas? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've been sort of thinking just in the last couple of weeks here, just about just the word justice. And it's sort of funny in, in that, you know, equity, you know, at some level, I think of equity as part of just this general drive for a just society. And that it's just, you know, it's it's framing it in more, more specifics and focusing it. But the, the larger larger motivation is, is, you know, are we moving toward a society with more justice or not? And clearly racial identity, ethnic identity, history is an unavoidable part of that. Yeah. And to throw it back at you, Charles, what do we know about health disparities in this space, in opioid overdose deaths, 
and access to treatment. You know, you've talked about sort of what led to some of these disparities, Mm -hmm. but can you dive into that a little bit more for our listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, just in like the research that's been coming out over this the past few years, we know that it's like rates of overdose among non-Hispanic Black people are rising. Um, continuing to rise in this country disproportionately compared to very very disproportionately along with indigenous people people who are native american alaskan natives and there's also kind of this other piece that's happening where we are trying to scale up a lot of our capacity of like i know specifically as far as california bridge we're trying to scale up our work to make sure that we're trying to reach more of these populations because we know that as far as access to treatment it's kind of complicated to say but it's like all these little things kind of connect to each other so for example if we talk about black people specifically in the u.s historically black people have had access to less generational wealth there's been less wealth passed on from generation to generation. There's been less income. There's been less opportunities. When we talk about anything like applying for jobs, there was research studies that have happened that showed when you have a black sounding name and apply for a job, you're more likely to have your resume thrown out before you even get an interview. So there's all these things that kind of lead to having less financial power, less structural power. And then you kind of marry that with how our health system works, which is pay to play. If you have the money, if you have the resources, you have access to the care. If you do not, you kind of get relegated to these other systems. And so when that happens, that means that's when we see things like, um, I know Helena Hansen has done like a lot of research. You might've had her on this show. She's like a genius, where she talks a lot about the disparities between the access of buprenorphine versus the access of methadone and how methadone clinics are usually located in lower income and neighborhoods that have more people of color, more black people, while buprenorphine prescribers tend to be concentrated in areas that have more people with income and more white people. Yep. And that is like a huge disparity because then we're even talking about how are you able to get access to your care? And we talk about the difference between drugs like methadone and butte, where in the way that they're regulated, methadone, you have to go somewhere every single day. People waking up at 6 a.m. and driving across their city to get access to their basic medical care that's in the form of a liquid this big. And then it has to be federally regulated, you know, like it's not available at every Uh pharmacy and office. Exactly. It's federally regulated. It's in specific locations. And while on the other side, you have something like bup, which is like, I don't want to say that either one of these is like a miracle drug or the way that we're supposed to be regulating it. That's not really my place to say. But I will say when you have something like buprenorphine, where it's much more common to get something like a 30 day dose, Mm -hmm. where you can take that and you can go and live your life where it doesn't interrupt the way that you live. That's a disparity. That's something to note. And I do think that some people like their methadone. They like being able to access it. I'm sure if you talk to some people, I'm sure the process of them going to pick it up every day, they would probably think of as, you know, part of their um, treatment process, part of their recovery process. And what we're talking about is choice and option and autonomy. And when some people have more of that choice, option, and autonomy, and some people have less, that's what drives these inequities. And I think that's what I really appreciate about the work of California Bridge specifically, because what we know about the emergency department is it's a primary access care point for a lot of people of color, for a lot of low-income people who don't have primary care. And so the more of these services that we're able to offer as part of the emergency department spectrum of care, the, the we're kind of starting to close those gaps, especially when talking about like how sometimes people will come to the ED 
And I mean, still, even in California, we're working on getting all of our hospitals scaled up. It's a case where people will come to the emergency department. They'll present with an opioid use disorder in some way, whether it's they came in for an overdose, they have an abscess, whatever that might be. They get a referral and that referral says, yeah, show up to this place in three months and, uh, and you yeah. can start treatment. Yep. It's like, oh. What do you do with that? Disconnect. like (laughs) Very big disconnect. That's exactly the word I would use between like what is people's realities versus how our system is functioning for them. And I love how California Bridge has closed that gap. And I I remember um, before I started working here, I had been talking to Dr. Rebecca Trotsky-Sir down in LA and she was talking about, yeah, I had a patient came in. I just gave them a three-month script. I was like, here you go. If you want your bup, go get it. If you don't want it, save it for later. Like, our job is to get it out there. Our job is to make sure you have that option to kind of make it so that when you're having this like prime opportunity, you're in this place, you're like in this kind of ground zero for like changing your relationship to your health. And we're giving you every resource possible to make a decision that works for you. And that's what's really powerful. And that's how we actually start making moves and shifting how care is applied equitably in our country. I'm just thinking as you know, some of the implications of what you know Charles is saying and this long script from Rebecca in medicine so often you're really sort of exp- you're supposed to kind of understand what's going on with the patient just like just how the notes are constructed right you're supposed to have like a past medical history HPI you're supposed to really understand and then you fit your treatment into that whereas with a lot of with harm reduction and other approaches you're kind of taking the other tact and you're saying Actually, lives are so complex, unique, and distinct. As a physician, you're never actually going to understand how this person survives and sustains meaning. And in fact, you just have to resign yourself to that and understand how you can contribute and help them. So it's just a really different way of, of looking at it. And I think really important for medicine as it becomes, you know, supposedly sort of a servant of a complex multicultural society versus a bastion of a certain way of life, you know, which is really kind of how it arrives. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And Don, looks like you had something to add too. Yeah, I think too, what health, you know, health equity has really been, I think, a more important drive over the last five years, especially, you know, than it has before. And often when I, you know, explain it to people, it's really, I think it helps to, to frame it between what's the difference between equality and equity, right? It's, it's, you know, to treat everyone equally, let's say with methadone. So everyone can come to the methadone clinic and you'll get your dose of methadone, right? But then when you actually dive in deeper, it's that mother who has three kids who's still working a job, might not be able to come to a methadone clinic every single day to get her methadone. So you've actually set that, that patient up for failure, that human up for failure, by putting her in the stringent, hey, this is what equality looks like. Now, equity actually looks at that complexity and says, wow, this person has three kids. They have, they have other demands. They, they, will not, they will not succeed in our current system. What can we do to actually help that patient succeed and obtain their fullest health necessary? Does that mean like once a week dosing with take-homes? Does it mean all these other things that actually set that person up for success? And that's where also you'll find that even though this is a buzzword in current nowadays terms, that our current system is built very much on not allowing variance and not allowing yeah. for exceptions to those rules. So equity, the equity is actually very hard to obtain for a lot of patients who have substance use disorders in 2022 and beyond. And it's because we have a lot of structural issues, whether that's where methadone clinics are, whether that's X waivers, whether that's other issues 
that make treatment sometimes more difficult to access for different demographics. And, you know, I think that's one of the big challenges that we have is how do you, like Andrew said, make a system that progresses more away from, from, hey, these are, you know, these are the guidelines, these are the 10 things that you do, and more towards something that acknowledges the complexity and the human condition and, and what different people need to succeed. Well, and a phrase that you hear a lot when speaking about health equity is trauma-informed care. And so, Charles, I see you nodding. Can you explain that to listeners who may not be, or Andrew as well, who may not be familiar with the concept? And Andrew, how can a clinician really incorporate trauma-informed care into their practice? So kind of two-part question there. Yeah. I think when I talk about trauma-informed care, one of the big things that I kind of say about it is sometimes... We get into a place as humans in our relationship to empathy, our relationship to how we care about people, where once we kind of know all these things about people, like like Don just told this story of this mother with three kids who is like trying to manage her substance use disorder. She wants to go get methadone, but it's just really hard. And I think once people hear that, they're like, okay, we really need to like work with this person. We need to figure out how to get them their care. But until that mother discloses that, until that conversation is had, all these rules are still in effect. Yeah, yeah. All these challenges still exist. And what trauma-informed care means to me is understanding that we all have trauma. We all have things we're dealing with. We all have things that are making it really hard for us to meet these needs and to get these things done. And instead of waiting for somebody to disclose it, instead of waiting for somebody to tell us all their business and all their life history, we should just act like it. How do we act like people, how do, when we know that it's like, yeah, people who use drugs who are unhoused are disproportionately dealing with things like being harassed by the police, are disproportionately dealing with things like having their things thrown away in the trash, of not having access to stable housing, of not having access to stable food, of not getting a lot of sleep. Like, just know that, just understand that. When somebody comes into your space and they're having a meltdown, it's like, you know what? Sometimes people are just having a moment. I would have a moment too sometimes if that was the situation that I was in. What I tell people a lot of the times is like sometimes people are more likely to cuss you out because you're a safer person to cuss out than the judge or a police officer or the person at the SNAP office who can actually deny them care. And that's like Mm -hmm. something to say that they feel safe enough to snap off of you. Notice that instead of how it maybe feels like you're feeling attacked personally. Maybe thinking about how when we have something like, when we know something is really prominent, which is just like the trauma of being in prison, the trauma of going through these like really harsh systems, like people getting their kids taken away, all that stuff impacts how they're showing up. And you will never know the extent of it. Going back to what Andrew said earlier about like having to let go of having to resign ourselves to understanding that it's like, you don't know everything about this person's life. We barely know everything about our own lives. And so not feeling like we have to maintain that control, but instead saying you're a human who has needs. And my goal is to make sure that these needs get met in the best way that I can. There's limits to my capabilities, but there also is things that I can extend to you, which is just like grace (laughs) and mercy and understanding that as like a provider, ultimately, like what we should be holding on to is I want you to get care. I want you to be happy and healthy and well. And sometimes when you're coming in to see me, you're not at your happiest or healthiest or best. And that's okay. And just kind of working with that the best that we can. Andrew, how does that affect your your practice as as a clinician to balance that? Because like Don kind of mentioned, we are so protocolized. We are so policy driven. We are so, you know, we learn that to do something the same time every time is quality. 
And so how do you as a clinician kind of balance that with, you know, what Charles just talked about? One of the things is that this is a place where the bizarre, not bizarre, but sort of, you know, unanticipated history of emergency medicine with Imtala, right? With this sort of yeah, funny yeah. situation really shaped an environment that is so unique in medicine where at some level it can be held up as this example of really not trauma-informed care. But at another level, it really exemplifies trauma-informed care in the sense that you can walk in, there's this just choice. You, you choose what your chief complaint is. You might be using heroin, you might be doing something else, you might have diabetes, but you have an itchy nose. And you can choose, this visit is because my nose is itchy. Like you, you know, versus like cardiology clinic kind of defines the problem. Oh, yeah. And you can also just physical space. You can get up and leave, right? Like in, in a clinic, it's really different. You're literally physically trapped. Whereas in the ER, you, you know, you're like, oh, this is working for me. And you can leave. And we say, actually, you know what? I like a sandwich instead. And then I'll leave. So there's, there's just, I think, a lot of things that emergencies departments, emergency physicians get criticized for are really wonderful. And personally, why I like recruiting emergency physicians into my clinic, because they they get this sort of adaptive, you know, pragmatic kind of culture right off the bat. And it's really not part of the most of, of other parts of medicine. So, you know, one of the things I've, as we're kind of coming right to the end here, I want to make sure we, we get to, and that's just money, right? It's, it's just yeah. money, 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 you know? How did Harvard create a great university? With money, you know? And so at some level, if we're really going to do this, institutions who serve people of color need to be funded, right? And right now, it's this crazy situation where it's just in plain sight that we somehow accept that poor people go to poor hospitals and rich people go to rich hospitals. Rich hospitals have marble and clean glass and, you know, and all these nice things. And poor hospitals are dirty, underfunded, and and scraping to get by. And we just sort of accept that, like, somehow that's that's okay. And I, I still don't get that. I don't know why we accept that. There is some interesting, you know, just basic stuff. Like the New York Times did a piece on how much hospitals charge for a given test or action, right? So, and it's all hidden there. So literally, if you go to, you know, UCSF Parnassus, you know, we don't really know how much they charge for an x-ray, but it's going to be triple or more what if you go to the county hospital it is. So literally, if I had a price tag, like how much does society pay for my health, you know, as a, you know, a given, you know, my position as a physician, it's going to be, you know, pretty big just because of all the institutions I work in. And then if you have someone, a low income person, their price tag, the amount of money we actually spend on their healthcare is so tiny. And it's just this blatant injustice. So if we're going to talk about equity, we really can't just avoid the fundamental distribution of capital and structural investment. And so if we want to do this, you got to just, you got to give more money to institutions that are dedicated to serving people of color, period. So where, where does that start though? Like Charles, on, on your side of like policy type thing, like where does that, how do you make that change? Because I, I agree, Andrew, but it just is like, okay, but how do we get this money? <laughs> yeah. 
I think that there's the short term and there's the long term. And I think in the short term, it's stuff like I think California Bridge would be like a pilot version of what we should be doing, which is making sure that these hospitals get scaled up to do this work better. And emergency department, it's like a very short term. It's like a short term solution. It's like, you know, emergency departments were not originally designed to be a primary access care. Yeah. Like people should be getting longitudinal health care from somebody that they develop a relationship with who can continue to be that health detective for them to figure out these things as opposed to, you know, these short term emergency situations where you're getting somebody who doesn't know you. It's not as it's just not as effective care. And so I think a lot of that is putting more resources into primary care putting more resources into ensuring people get care in as convenient ways as possible. I think expanding the roles that pharmacists play um, in their area is huge, 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 huge. More people live closer to a pharmacist than they do to a doctor. And they see that pharmacist a lot more often than they see their doctor. We should be making sure that people can get care there. Care should be available in every school. It should be available in every workplace. You shouldn't be able to walk down a block without finding somebody who can give you at least something. And that's like a piece of it. But what that really requires is us to completely overhaul the way we do this. And I mean, like, I, I like, of course, there's all these different drums we can beat on. When we talk about something like universal health care, that's a benefit of it. Instead of us sitting over here and saying, like, well, this person got six bandages and this person got seven bandages and having to tally it up like this, give the people their band-aids. Get the people what they need. Let it happen pay into a single payer thing that we can collect this money for and we can pay people salaries to do their job. It does not need to be as complicated as this. We don't need to be counting beans. Let's just get people the care that they need. And I think that there's so much focus on like individualizing and and pairing all this stuff out. When we talk about the role of the emergency department, there's so much flack that poor people get for overutilizing the emergency department, for inappropriately utilizing the emergency department, when really what they're getting flack for is, is... having the audacity to seek medical care, having the audacity to seek medical care and think that they, and not pay hundreds of dollars for it. That's what they, that's what people are mad about. (laughs) And so like when we, when we change our system to be focused on getting people longitudinal care Mm -hmm. that is culturally competent, that actually benefits them in a way that is as well that people don't feel harmed going into we didn't even get into like thinking about things like ob and things like that how nice. black women are in a huge risk for maternal mortality because people don't listen to their complaints when they're talking about their pain and their injuries yep. there's all these things that are just like on one level these individual people-centric things that we need to shift and in the long term we just need to pay- change the way people get paid that's what it's about. And, you know, I'm not going to get in trouble by talking about all these individual companies and corporations and all that stuff. But in general, when you have all these players that have motivations that are different than ensuring that every person has access to care, you have to start questioning what are the decisions that they're yeah. making and how are they being made? Because if it benefits somebody, if it puts another million dollars in somebody's pocket, that means that is care that is directly going away from vulnerable people, because those are the people who aren't going to be able to get people mad and to rile up something against it. Because you know what? When people have resources and their care gets taken away, you're going to hear about it. You're going to know about it and something's going to get changed. But when it's people who are structurally vulnerable, when it's people who don't have those resources, you don't always hear about it. And that means that they're just going to have to keep kind of dealing with it. And that's what we're pushing back against, because that's what's fueling this issue. And I mean, to kind of connect it back to the opioid epidemic in general, it's like even the conversations that we're having in this have a lot to do with the populations of people dying shifting. 
Mm-hmm. And when people who were richer, when people who had more money started overdosing, that was the big conversation. When we go back to those risk factors for overdose, when you have money, and this, this is a story I would always tell them, I would do harm reduction trainings. I would say like, do you think that every person who uses drugs is homeless? And people would be like, no. It's like, do you think every person who uses drugs makes less than $50,000 a year? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, what about $250,000 a year? And they're like, absolutely not. And I'm like, yeah, there's people in all these expensive office buildings making a lot of money doing the same things. But the difference is they have access to high quality drugs. They have access to new sterile syringes when they want them. When they inject, they can sit down and put on an album and listen to some nice music, put on some mood lighting, use in a very calm, controlled way where they can make sure that they're getting the appropriate dose versus other people are sitting out on the street with people passing them by, using under a coat so that people don't look at them and judge them and stigmatize them. They don't get arrested. That's different risk factors that have nothing to do with what you're choosing to put in your body and everything to do with the systems that we're setting up. And so the more that we just really fight for those people to have the care that they need, that's what's actually going to attack the the top line of this. We should like, that's that public, that's that classic public health issue. We should not be dealing with people who are these minors, who are like these little outliers. We need to deal with the big problem because that's what's going to create the big changes. Yeah. And do you feel like agencies like NIDA, you know, National Institute of Drug Abuse are, are starting to do those things? Because we have we have spoken to some of their yeah. leaders and the healing community study and, you know, things that, that are definitely yeah. moving in the right direction. But, you know, what I'm hearing is it's just not enough. Like, I mean, it's great, but it's not enough. It's just I think that the changes that need to happen are just so big massive and they're happening and it's so nice at working at a place like california bridge it's so nice seeing this work that like these doctors on our team are doing every single day these nurses on our team are doing every single day to do this each individual like really just reaching out to people and getting them to change their mind and the way that they approach it and there's just going to be a big switch over as we start getting more and fewer people moving over, where I think that that's going to become more and more of a benefit. And these or, these bigger governmental organizations starting to get on board with this is starting to turn that tide. Yeah. Like, you know, Biden talked about harm reduction for the for, in a State of the Union address. Like, that's a big thing to say. And hinted at getting rid of the X waiver. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like, you know, we need to stop dealing with the hints. We need to stop yeah. dealing with the little stuff, the baby steps. We don't need any more pilot studies. We don't need any more seed funding. <laughs> we know we what works. <laughs> we know what works. Yeah. And we and I say that because every single harm reduction intervention has been scrutinized to all hell because people want yep. to prove that yep. it doesn't work. And all that is proved is that these are the most successful interventions. They save money, they save lives, and they work. And that's what we need to dig into when we start getting into our messaging. Well, I wish we had so much more time to unpack all these other things, but I want to respect your time today. Andrew, any parting thoughts here? No, I'm just uh, so glad we're having this conversation. I mean, it is something to remember is as much as we can kind of rightfully, you know, criticize where we're at. You know, if you work overseas, you work in Europe, you work in Latin America, it's even worse. Just just yeah, FYI, yeah. right? That's just the, So the, the fact that we're diving into this, and trying to to right the ship of history towards a towards something more just is commendable, you know, and it's it's part of this American experiment that really no one else in the world is is doing at the scale we are. So, you know, big challenge, a lot of lot of shame, but also a lot of pats in the back that we're that we're here and and doing this together. And hope, right? Like you you, you have hope yeah. that it will change and get yeah. And thank you all for inviting us. This is great. 
Yeah, thank you. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Health One Continental Division and Swedish Medical Center, for their financial contributions to EMM. Donations from them and listeners like you make it possible to fulfill our mission of producing and spreading free medical education to the masses. If you enjoy our show, please consider making a one-time or recurring donation to help cover our operational costs so we can focus on innovating better ways to transmit new knowledge to our loyal audience. Click on the link in our show notes to make a donation through PayPal today. Thank you.